everyone and welcome to a new episode of Rewind, the official podcast of the History Society of St. Stephen's College. The podcast aims to make history and its various aspects more accessible and interactive and to facilitate simplified conversations between students, historians, writers, ac academicians and curators. Today we have with us Dr. Jessica Hinchi, who is an assistant professor in history at Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. She has worked along the intersections of gender, sexuality, colonialism, and emergent familial structures in the same period. Her latest book, Governing Gender and Sexuality in Colonial India, The Hijra, circa 1850s to 1900s, traces the history of the Hijra community in the subcontinent under the colonial rule and explores both colonial and post-colonial perceptions of the same. I am really very delighted to host you today, ma'am. So, um, I would like to begin by asking you to elaborate a bit upon the etymology of the term hijra. So we see that the term has acquired several layers of meanings over time. It is often used to refer to eunuchs and non-binary individuals and is also used within lay circles at times as an umbrella term for the LGBTQIA plus community. In all, it meant different things to different people, whether it were the British, or the community itself or to the lay people. So it would be great if you can tell our listeners more about how the meaning of the term hijra has evolved over time. So first of all, thank you so much um, for the invitation uh, to speak on the History Society podcast and also um, for that great question. So I think as your question highlights, there's been an ongoing historical process of translating hijra in relation to other terms um, in various languages, right? Um, including English, of course, um, as well as other Hindi and Urdu terms, other terms from other South Asian languages as well. And so I think tracing the history of um, how the term hydra has been translated is, you know, a really um, important and interesting sort of direction for research. So in terms of the history of the term, the deeper history, there is a longer history of descriptions of practices and people who we might um, sort of read as um, being gender variable. Um, but scholars think that the term Hydra became a term that was circulating from around the 16th century. But this is very much an educated guess. And really, um, more research is needed on this to sort of trace how the term Hydra has been historically used, its relationship to terms for other social affiliations, other social groups, um, and also other gender practices in multiple languages. But it does seem that it's probably around, um, somewhere around the 16th century that this term circulates. However, there hasn't been a lot of research prior to the 18th century. Um, so that's really when we get a sort of clearer sense of how the term hydra is used. Um, so, for example, uh, historians who have done research with records from the Maratha state and also from Ovid, um, they've shown that records from those states mention hydras, particularly in the context of state patronage. Um, and that patronage could take a 
few different forms. For instance, um, land uh, grants to Hydra discipleship lineages that were rent free um, or a recognition of Hydra's um, right to conduct badhai or um, sort of donation collection uh, and performance practices in a given area or also patronage of their performances as well so it's and that that is sort of visible to us from the 18th century i think in part because that's when historians have sort of begun to um to research the hydra community and so you know a longer history would shed more light on this um, but we know that, it, that, at least in the 18th century, Hydras were clearly considered to be entitled to certain forms of state support, um, although they appear to be um, relatively marginal in their social position, but nonetheless deserving of the protection and the patronage of the state. The existing literature also suggests somewhat ambiguous elite attitudes around the 18th century. Um, and I would point listeners to work that's been done by Lawrence Preston, um, Nicholas Abbott, and also Ruth Venita that gives us some insight into this. So in terms of how the term um, Hydra has sort of been um, understood since the 18th century, um, as we will talk, I think, about more, um, this category eunuch begins to be used um, by, first of all, uh, British colonial officials, and then subsequently by, broadly speaking, elite Indian men who were, you know, um, discussing the Hydra community, including in English language writings and communications with the colonial government, as well as within um, the newspapers too. And so um, the term eunuch emerges as a really a sort of criminalizing category that is applied against the Hydra community. Um, and of course, since then, um, the, the Hydra community has also been sort of associated with a number of different terms. But I think one thing that we might think about here, um, and I could point your listeners to the work of Anuruddha Dutta on um, West Bengal, is to think about the relationship between Hydra and other trans locally circulating terms for social grouping and for gender expression or subjectivity. Um, and their research on West Bengal shows that in the late 20th century and the early 21st century, um, the term Hydra had sort of varying overlaps and also um, was also distinguished from a range of um, terms that were locally used for people who we might broadly call gender um, or, or sexual um, variable people, right, who had varying forms of gender and sexuality. And sometimes there would be overlap between Hydra and other terms, other times um, people would distinguish Hydra and um, other terms. Terms, right, And so I think charting the changes um, in the relationship between how people identify with the term Hydra, um, as well as that sort of level of um, broader 
social understanding of the term hydra, which is what I've been talking about to this point, will be really important for historians and anthrop and you know this is already something that anthropologists have written a lot about. Thank you, Ron. It was really insightful to learn how uh, that community is often like considered a homogeneous community, but like there are like multiple meanings to the same term, which is uh, used for this particular community. And like, mm. it was interesting to like interesting how you brought out how it had like a sort of pre-colonial origins and like, um, it was how it was used in the elite circles as well. Um, my next question is um, about one of the peculiar peculiarities that you bring out in your book. Uh, which is the fact that hijras were policed under the Criminal Tribes Act. You point out that historians have not adequately examined why eunuchs and criminal tribes were policed under the same law. And uh, um, so what, what does this say about the colonial perceptions of the hijras? Did they see them as a community or a tribe with certain immoral practices and customs? Or did they see their behavior as a form of self-expression that uh, must be policed right yeah thank you for this um question and certainly there's a large literature on the criminal tribes act that has particularly focused on the colonial policing of socially marginalized groups who were labeled criminal tribes from roughly the 1850s, 1860s onwards. Um, but historians of the Criminal Tribes Act have generally ignored the second part of the law, um, which was only enforced um, between 1871 and 1911, and primarily in northern India, so what is now UP. Um, but nonetheless, they hadn't really factored in this um, colonial project to govern and control the Hydra community into their understandings of what the Criminal Tribes Act did. And indeed, you know, this whole concept um, of or category of a criminal tribe. So just to sort of give a little bit of background. Um, so it's really from the late 18th century that Europeans begin to write about the Hydra community and, and their accounts are overall very stigmatizing. Um, they often portray Hydras in terms of obscenity and sexual immorality. Um, but it's really from the 1830s that colonial officials began to view Hydras as a community who needed to be controlled, right, as a problem of governance and as a threat to colonial authority in some way. And the Hydra community were seen as being ungovernable um, in multiple ways, right? So posing sort of multiple so-called problems to colonial authority. So certainly their gender expression was um, in the eyes of colonial officials linked to what they saw as immoral sexual practices. And there's this sort of equation of gender um, embodiment and sexual practices um, that were you know, labeled to be unnatural. Um, they also, colonial officials also viewed hydra performance practices as um, obscenity and as a threat to public order. They were also really worried um, and anxious about um, hydra's mobility. So in the context of donation collection um, and performance practices known as batai, um, 
hydras would um, would be mobile, mobile, right? They would move uh, within cities and towns, and sometimes between towns and villages too. Usually over smaller areas, but that was viewed as sort of, you know, um, undermining the um, stability of um, colonial political borders. And there was also a stereotype of the Hydra as kidnapper, which I sort of unpack in my book. And maybe we can talk a little bit later on about, you know, the ways that th that distorted and misread um, Hydra initiation practices. But the point that I want to make about that is that several of these aspects of this colonial stereotype of the Hydra intersect with the ways that so-called criminal tribes were criminalized. So as I mentioned, um, the groups that were labeled criminal tribes were usually socially marginalized in some way. Um, how they were socially marginal um, did vary. So some people um, were described as being very low caste. Um, some people were described as being mobile or nomadic some as um, so-called hunter-gatherers, so people who were seen to not be using resources in what the colonial government saw as a productive manner, um, and also people who were involved in pre-colonial policing practices where they would raid one um, ruler or zamandar's domains um, and be patronised by a rival um, zamandar or ruler. So there's lots of sort of very diverse people who are classified as criminal tribes. But in both the criminal tribe and the Hydra project, um, mobility of people and the inability of the colonial government to really pin down people's movements and to know um, the, the mobilities of people across the subcontinent was a really key issue, right? So both Hydras and criminal tribes are often referred to as being wandering people, even though actually their mobility practices really varied considerably among both those sort of categories. Um, Moreover, the criminal tribes were also criminalized through really um, very highly gendered and sexualized discourses. So, for, for example, um, the reports that were offered to the government of India in justification of the notification of a particular group, uh, usually a caste group, as a criminal tribe, frequently um, described the women of those communities as um, moral, um, as having deviant marriage practices, um, or as being, um, you know, the term sexually loose was often used. And this is part of a much broader colonial and also dominant caste um, and high caste discourse around caste marginalized women's sexuality that we see in a lot of contexts in 19th century South Asia. Um, and this is something that Charagupta has written about um, in other contexts, um, also something that Dobomitra has, has written about. So that much broader sort of very casteist discourse around women's sexuality is also evident in the criminal tribes. And of course that links to and resonates with the description of the Hydra community as being sexually immoral. So there's these overlaps in the sorts of colonial discourses that were used to criminalize both the criminal tribes and 
Hijras who were labelled eunuchs by the colonial state. And more broadly, this period in the 1860s and 1870s is a period when multiple socially marginalised groups were criminalised by the colonial state. Um, so, for instance, um, lepers were also sort of regulated in this period. So were um, prostitutes or sex workers, also European vagrants. Um, so, you know, this is a period where the colonial state is really sort of anxious about the social margins and controlling those social margins. And of course, we're talking in the aftermath of the 1857 rebellion. And so knowing the colonial population and and controlling it was a you know a key concern of the state at that point. Um, so I've been chatting for a long time or talking for a long time, but it might be useful to just really quickly explain like what each of these um, part one and part two of the Criminal Tribes Act did. Um, so part one, which was applied against the so-called criminal tribes, there were sort of two ways that they could be policed. Um, one was to be um, confined to a particular area, usually a village, um, and there were past systems that were imposed that policed people's mobilities. Often also roll calls were instituted um, by the police, so people had to front up every day or sometimes multiple times a day to have their name called by the police or an official. Um, the second way that the so-called criminal tribe were policed was by being detained in penal settlements where forced labour was, um, was enforced. Part two of the Criminal Tribes Act that applied against the Hydra community and other people who were classified as eunuchs worked a little bit differently. Um, it did involve registration of people like the first part of the Criminal Tribes Act did but it also prohibited people classified as eunuchs from performing in public um, or wearing female clothing or um, ornaments in public. So it policed gender expression and performance practices. Um, it also provided for the removal of children from Hydra households and children were defined as people under um, people of 16 or under. And this was an attempt to stop um, the Hydra community from initiating new disciples, right? And as many of your listeners may know, discipleship is a really important structure of the Hydra community and is intertwined with Hydra kinship, um, you know, as, as well. So to sort of police those discipleship practices, the removal of children was, um, was instituted. So they, they did differ, right, in their provisions, but registration was the central policing and surveillance practice of both parts of the Criminal Tribes Act. It's uh, very interesting to see how um, the colonial ideas of what constitutes as like moral and immoral was like central to both like policing the criminal tribes that were based on like caste lines and the hijras as well. And um, speaking of like policing the hijras, uh, in your book, you talk about the very instrumental role of the Northwest province government in uh, structuring the criminal laws aimed at policing the hijra community and creating the moral panic around the hijras. But uh, why specifically the Northwest province government? Uh, do you think there were certain region specific factors that may have prompted this particular provincial government to push for these criminal laws? 
Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And um, I think probably most of your listeners know that the Northwestern provinces then became the United Provinces and um, today is what is Uttar Pradesh and Uttarakhand. Um, but the, yeah, so why was it this particular part of Northern India that um, colonial officials were pushing for the control of the Indra community? I think partly this is because of the locally varied nature of the colonial state and the ways in which um, colonial governance was sort of always um, locally and regionally varied, right? So lots of historians have pointed this out in other contexts. And so, for example, you know, Stoller and Cooper talking about colonialism in general um, argued that the colonial state is neither monolithic nor omnipotent, right? So it's partly because of just that unevenness of colonial control and also con colonial projects, right? That you often have projects for policing, um, governing parts of society or gender or sexual practices that are emerging from local colonial governments and that reflect local concerns. So the Northwestern provinces was particularly concerned with mobile and socially marginalized groups um, who were constructed as criminal, including you know, those diverse groups who were classified as criminal tribes in this period. So it was actually the Northwestern provinces in Punjab that pushed for a criminal tribes act. And for the first few decades um, that the CTA was in place, they were the only two provinces that actually enforced it. So it was a regional project. The whole act was a regional project, right, to begin with. Um, and one reason why, you know, groups that were seen as being wandering or mobile were a particular concern in this part of India might also be because we're talking after the 1857 rebellion um, and Northern India well, particularly the Northwestern provinces was one of the centers of revolt. And so I think the Northwestern provinces government was especially concerned with knowing and controlling the social margins. Although of course, you know, a lot of provinces, a lot of colonial governments were at different points in time. Another factor might be that this particular province had a very evangelical leaning official upper ranks. Um, so, Although officially after 1857, you know, there was a, a supposed policy of religious non-interference, um, you know, as we know, um, that was sort of applied and defined in very selective ways. But this province in particular um, had, it had sort of over a few decades actually recruited quite a few officials who assumed powerful positions and who were evangelical leaning and um, also had close ties to Christian missionaries. So that might also be a factor why the Northwestern provinces in particular wanted to control and to govern and to suppress the Hydra community. That's something uh, we actually, I wasn't actually aware of that, like the officials in the Northwest province had like a strong evangelical leaning yeah. and like how their own um, ideas might have affected um, the steps they took. Um, we, um, we also find, by the way, we also find that the colonial era was accompanied by the rise of an urban middle class, which was firmly entrenched in the caste and gender hierarchies at the time. Um, so 
how far were the emerging urban elites uh, at the time, emerging urban Indian elites at the time responsible in shaping the colonial attitudes towards the hijras, apart from their own considerations, of course? Mm. Yeah, so this is, I think, a really important question. Um, and certainly my research on late 19th century northern India suggests that this colonial anti-hydra project was primarily propelled by colonial officials. Um, so actually even the broader European community in India weren't especially concerned with um, the hydra community in this period, at least judging by the newspapers and that, that um, sort of catered to that European population and other sources. But talking about the, um, the Indian middle class, and you know, here we're talking about groups who were educated. Um, they usually came from higher caste or dominant caste um, groups, um, or also groups that would have um, identified as Ashraf. Um, and they um, were, you know, often they were involved in um, sort of um, occupations like being officials and lawyers and judges, um, being educators and journalists and so on. And increasingly they identify as middle class, right? Which also has a sort of caste and status connotation to it as well. So this sort of Indian middle class, um, that is emerging in this period as an identity was not especially concerned with um, the Hydra community. And this is a period in which middle-class identity is being defined in part through gender and sexuality and notions of respectability. And so certainly middle-class um, North Indian um, men. Um, in this period, it's largely men who were writing in newspapers and, you know, print media. They were um, very concerned with marginal social groups who they viewed as immoral, especially with courtesans um, and also with women who were labelled prostitutes. They're also very concerned with the so-called woman question. So gender and sexual morality is how they're constructing their identity, right, in part. But the Hydra community are not really um, a focus of that discourse and that gender and sexual politics. That said, I have found a number of letters as well as newspaper articles um, and the odd speech from middle-class um, Indian men who were calling for the suppression of the Hydra community and often calling for quite um, quite far-reaching and quite harsh measures too. So for instance, calling for the banishment of all Hydras from British India or calling for their isolation um, on an island or a hill, um, as well as calling for things like the registration and policing of eunuchs uh, or um, Hydras, which would happen from 1871. So these, um, middle-class men who did talk about the Hydra community in this period in the 1860s and 1870s, they particularly portrayed the Hydra community as being kidnappers and enslavers. And it's probably good to just take a, a minute here to contextualize that. Um, the So this idea that Hydras are kidnappers at least was uh, 
you know, a part of, it was a central part of this moral panic in the 19th century. Um, and it distorted hijra initiation in a number of ways. And that's even clear from the, even the colonial archive, right, makes that clear. So just to contextualize that, in this period in, um, in many parts of South Asia, but especially, you know, in particular Northern India that I'm talking about, um, discipleship practices and enslavement practices were sort of intersecting. So a lot of discipleship based communities initiated um, people who were um, of enslaved backgrounds as well as people who were not of enslaved backgrounds, right? So there's this sort of partial overlap between discipleship and enslavement. And of course, you know, there were in the 19th century, um, even after the abolition of slavery, there were, um, you know, practices of enslavement in a lot of social groups, right? And the evidence suggests that some Hydra initiates was, um, had been enslaved in childhood, but certainly not all. And we can't really do percentages, but it's clear that adults were, people who were considered adults were initiated to the Hydra community too. So this idea that like all Hydra in initiates were kidnapped or enslaved is, it's clear as incorrect even from colonial official archives, right? But this idea was also quite central to the middle-class Indian portrayal of the Hydra community in this period. And part of why they're called, you know, part of their justification for sort of harsh measures against the Hydra community. So the colonial government, government certainly thought that it had the backing of um, some important elites in Northern India who actually, you know, wrote to the government and um, said, that they supported the suppression of the Hydra community, also provided sort of typologies of different types of so-called eunuchs um, that became quite important to official colonial knowledge. And the colonial government, I think, was quite um, confident that there wouldn't be opposition to this um, campaign to suppress the Hydra community. But at the same time, this was a, a project that was really propelled from colonial officials. And it is clear that middle class North Indians were not as concerned about the Hydra community as they were about other issues um, in that got connected to their gender and sexual politics. So uh, talking about the hierarchies in an urban landscape, uh, we find that the cityscape even today is uh, largely structured on caste and communal lines. In such a scenario, what does the emergent community identity of uh, a group of individuals like Hijras, uh, Khwajasarais and Zananas look like? Do we find traces of caste hierarchies within communities formed on the basis of shared modes of self-expression and identity as well? Okay, so thanks for that question. I think I'll, I'll sort of address um, your first question and then your second one. So in terms of um, the historical, um, I guess, identities or a group affiliations of um, people known as Hidras and Khwajasaras and Zananas, and what is the relationship between those um, identities and social groupings? So, um, the let's take the Khajasara community for a moment. So these were, and I, I'll just say quickly that Khajasara is a term that is sometimes used by people who are members of 
hydra discipleship lineages or who might also use the term hydra um, particularly in pakistan today um historically um and it you know the history of the Qajasari is something that many um, Hijras may view as part of their history. And certainly the historical relationship between these two groups of people and these two terms does um, appear to be complex and it's something that we need more research on. Um, but let's just, so as background, so the Qajasari were um, enslaved, um, castrated people who had a often quite important political role um, in South Asian states. Um, they also uh, were employed as domestic um, workers, servants, um, and other functions within households because they could traverse both uh, male and female spaces. But they had a much wider range of roles, including like beyond what we might term domestic service. So they were often the managers of, um, you know, nobles or rulers' um, estates, right? They were often put in charge of revenue collection. They had military functions often. Um, and they were in often scholars um, as well. So they had a lot of um, varied administrative and sort of literate um, functions. They also embodied masculinity and they were usually referred to as men by others, right, as well as by themselves. So they had a masculine gender expression um, from that's clear from the historical records. The Hijra community, on the other hand, had a had predominantly feminine gender expression um, historically, um, though they may have sometimes expressed um, codes of behaviors that might be coded as masculine, but that certainly had a predominantly sort of fe feminine gender expression, it would seem. Um, and as we've discussed, um, they especially had a social role as performers and donation collectors, though they did some other forms of work as well, like, um, for instance, they were often um, involved in agricultural labour or cultivation. Um, so the Hydra community seems to have had a somewhat more marginal social position than the Kodjasara, though I think more research is needed. Um, and, you know, Kodjasara could become quite politically prominent and some um, elite Khojasara really sort of um, did become quite um, economically sort of powerful within their lifetimes as well. So the question though of the relationship between these two groups is really complicated and um, Nicholas Abbott who works on Avad in northern India has shown how in the writings of um, elites from um, in in largely in Persian he's looked at um, in northern India, there was often sort of this association of the Hydra and the Kodjasara and some and sometimes an association that was described in sort of disparaging terms in the 18th century in terms of um, sexual immorality or effeminacy. So at least in terms of non um, Hydra and non Kodjasara discourses, sometimes they were associated with each other. But what we don't know, I think, is how these groups, if these groups were sort of related in terms of social practices and um, and 
you know, their sort of everyday social roles. Um, so just to like go to the colonial context quickly, um, the Kotasoa were not criminalised under the Criminal Tribes Act officially. They were considered to be confined within respectable households and therefore not in need of criminalisation. But it does seem clear that some were caught up in the Criminal Tribes Act um, and, you know, this, this anti-Hydra campaign. The Zanana um, is another group um, that were often referred to in 19th century archives. Um, and which once again appears to have had a complex relationship with the Hydra community, though one that we need more research on. Um, and there's a lot of contradictions in the sources in terms of descriptions of their gender expression. Um, and that might suggest that they had sort of contextual gender expression, expressing femininity in some contexts and masculinity in others. Um, they were not on the whole um, initiated into discipleship lineage based households like Hydra's were, though there does seem to have been some movement um, between these two um, group affiliations, right? So people who were Zanana would sometimes then be initiated as Hydra's. But in the 19th century, um, you know, the, the colonial government really wants to pin down who these people are, what's the relationship between them, um, and, and who can we classify as eunuchs as well, right, um, becomes a legal issue after the Criminal Tribes Act is passed. And that effort to sort of pin people into categories clearly obfuscates a lot of social complexities, right, um, which I think we've only scratched the surface of unpacking. Um, so on your second question about caste, um, I think that's a question that's quite difficult to answer with the historical records, at least from the 19th century. And I think I'll only attempt to answer it in relation to the Hydra community. Um, but there are references in, um, at least within the official archive, to um, people perceiving Hydra initiates as having lost caste. Um, whether or not that is a sort of colonial um, mistranslation or distortion of what the perception was um, isn't really clear. Um, I, there does, there are sort of references to caste marginality um, in the archives, but I would you know, I think that's something we need to do more research on and with different kinds of sources and possibly different periods as well. Certainly, I think um, caste hierarchies is something that's important to think about in the contemporary context too, um, in the context of LGBT movements. And there's been some really LGBT movements and then as well under that umbrella or adjacent to it, movements for um for hydra rights and and um and the advocacy of hydras themselves as well as um other people who are have you know we might call gender and sexual sexually variable um so there's been a lot of really good um anthropological and queer and trans studies work about caste um and how caste sort of operates in the present, um, including within activist circles, as well as in terms of how the state 
um, attempts to govern people with diverse gender and sexual expressions. So I think that's something that's really important for historians to, to look at more historically um, and to think about the ways that caste is also inflecting the historical record. So for instance, the really disparaging accounts from middle-class Indian men who had a lot of caste power and dominance um, about the Hijra community. Like the caste discourse is often not explicit there, but we might think about how caste marginality might be operating in those sources too. Um, that was very um, interesting, like how you brought out the differences between the Hijra community, the Khwajasarais and the Zananas. And also like the caste aspect of things, um, you pointed out how like some colonial records um, misinterpret um, hijras as having lost the caste and like that's something very interesting and something worth looking at and uh, uh, also in your book you talk about the life histories of hijras so um, could you elaborate for our audience as to how these life histories provide a different perspective on the hijras from what we find in the colonial archives yeah, this is a really, um, a really good question. And I think too, um, like, it, as you might have um, guessed from my previous answer too, I think um, there's a lot of sort of, um, you know, on the one hand, we want to unpack the sort of elite colonial um, or elite Indian discourses surrounding the Hydra community. Um, and then on the other hand too, it's important to not sort of fix, right? Who a hydra was historically, even as we also want to uncover something of their social history, right? And I think it's those tensions that are really methodologically challenging, but also um, potentially like productive, I think, um, to think through. So um, in terms of, like life histories. Um, I was interested in in my book that came out um, a few years ago in making the archive itself the subject of the book. So in actually tracing the history of 19th century archives that um, talk about the Hydra community rather than taking those archives simply as a source. And I'm not the first person to take this approach, um, certainly. So, for instance, um, Anne Stoller in her book Along the Archival Grain, which you know some of your listeners might have read, um, she describes this as analysing the form of the archive, not merely its content, right? So shifting from the content of the archive to thinking about its form and how it historically was made, right? And what the history of that is. So most colonial and also elite Indian accounts were suffused with criminalizing and often stigmatizing and pathologizing discourses. But nonetheless, there were multiple narratives in those 19th century archives. And there were a lot of contradictions and tensions um, in the sorts of narratives that were produced around the figure of the Hydro. And this was um, this sort of evidence of multiple narratives that was 
often contradictory, was especially, especially the case in the district level files. So rather than at the higher levels of government, you know, at the provincial level or even at the divisional level, um, where often um, the varying reports of um, British and Indian officials sort of became abstracted and um, synthesized into more dominant authoritative forms of knowledge that were often more stereotyping and criminalizing. When we look to the um, district level files, we certainly get that sort of criminalizing official knowledge, but we also see other accounts of the Hijra community that pressed against or challenged or destabilized that authoritative knowledge. And so I was sort of interested in thinking about how those multiple narratives circulated. Um, and I was also interested in looking at the short biographies that were often recorded at the district level, particularly on police registers. And these are, of course, the documents that were used to criminalize people as eunuchs, right? Um, and so they were essential to the policing and the attempted suppression and attempted elimination of the Hydra community. But nonetheless, the biographical um, fragments that were often recorded on those police registers often did challenge the dominant colonial knowledge. Um, and so these life histories that you know, we see on police registers and other sorts of official documents, they're very much a product of the colonial archive, right? So they don't, they're not offering a different, different perspective from the colonial archive so much as in the colonial archive. Um, and they often do destabilized um, its knowledge forms. So I foregrounded some of these fragmentary biographical details in order to critique some of the dominant 19th century narratives about the Hydra community. So, for example, um, I mentioned before that both in, um, well, in, in most of the 19th century records, whether they're written by colonial officials or by middle class or elite Indian um, men, they, um, the Hydra community were usually portrayed as being beggars, um, performers, or prostitutes. These are the terms that are used. Um, and certainly performance and donation collection practices or batai were really central to both. I mean, it's, it's quite clear that they were central practices, right, to, um, to the Hydra community, both in terms of like their um, social role as well as their livelihoods, right? But I actually found on the registers, the police registers, that multiple forms of work were often noted, right? So that people would do batai, right? They would perform and collect donations, but they would also do agricultural labor. They would also do cultivation, um, or they might also trade small, you know, um, sort of trade in a in a small way, right? Like not, I'm not talking big merchants. They were traders at the local level. So those police registers actually allowed me to think about the varied forms of work of the Hydra community. And they also allowed me to problematize that simple equation of Hydra, Hydra initiation and enslavement that I mentioned before as well. So I think the challenge here is to 
think about how those life histories destabilize dominant forms of knowledge without then attempting to sort of fix who a hydra was right in the 19th century because that will always um you know oversimplify more varied and complex social and gender practices so i think it's it's that tension that um i'm interested in and i don't know if in my book i sort of answered that question, right? Um, I think there are other approaches that you could take as well, but that that was the sort of logic behind my approach. So uh, talking about the colonial archive, uh, you just talked about how there existed multiple variations in the understanding of the Hijra community. And uh, these variations also existed at uh, local, regional and central levels. So um, this would mean that the colonial knowledge base was itself conflicted when it came to formulating laws, policing their so-called deviant behavior. Um, so in such a scenario, what should be one's approach towards these archives when it comes to writing the histories of the Hijra community? Right, so that's a really big question. And um, yeah, as I said, I don't, I don't think that I necessarily have come to an answer that I think is the answer for all time. And I actually think that in gender history, um, we need multiple approaches and multiple methods. And I think actually um, thinking about them in relation to each other can give us um, multiple histories, right? And, and therefore a richer historical understanding. So, it might be useful to sort of put it in a bit of a broader context too, to what not just me, but like some other gender historians, uh, particularly of South Asia, South Asian diasporas, how they've approached this question of archival methodologies. And certainly different gender historians take differing approaches. Um, many historians have taken the approach of making the archive itself the object of analysis or um, being interested in the production of knowledge and how that production of knowledge is gendered. And you can probably tell that I'm interested in that sort of approach. Um, other historians have also, and, and some of those same historians have also been interested in questions of um, how people sort of imprint upon the archive, right? So fragments of people's lives, other historian, gender historians have been really interested in questions of agency, right? So there's, and you know, I could list more approaches. Um, so it might be, um, a, you know, useful, I think, for some of your listeners to, if they're interested in this, they could have a read if they um, haven't um, of the work of other, some recent gender historians who have you know, brought out really great books that are engaging with this question. So Anjali Arundeka, um, Ishitapande, Dobamitra, um, Arunamadatta, I think all their work's really interesting to read in relation to each other and I guess also my book too. Um, but so I'm sort of talking around your question, um, <laughs> but I think that there's a few things to think about here. I think the history of the knowledge forms that we actually produce as historians is really important, right? So 
One person who's looked at that in great detail is Deba Mitra in her recent book, Indian Sex Life. And there she's interested in how um, she's interested in how the production of, of social scientific thought in India was um, highly sexualized, right? So how the figure of the sexually deviant woman was central to the making of social science disciplines, right? Like, um, you know, so for instance, like um, philology or anthropology or history or um, criminology, right? Um, so that's that's one I think really important thing to think about is like how are our forms of analysis actually gendered and, and sexual, right, in their intellectual histories. Another question that has been um, the matter of a lot of debate is the question of agency. Um, and gender historians have pointed out that um, often we have approached the question of agency um, very much in terms of like oppositional forms of resistance or acts that um, people um, perform which challenge dominant power structures, right? And so there's been a critique of that and attempts to reformulate agency. And that's been going on, I think, for several decades, right? As um, a sort of, um, as a question that gender historians have debated in South Asia. Um, so Aruna Madata's recent book on Cooley women would be a really good place to look for some recent engagement with those questions of agency. Um, and her argument is that Cooley women in British Malaya, um, they um, performed situational forms of agency, right? Which were not always sort of necessarily long lasting in their effects in bringing down or in challenging power structures um, and which were much more fleeting in every day, right? Um, and also the importance of survival as a form of agency. So you can see how, you know, in my when I was talking before about life histories um, and making the archive itself the object of analysis, talking about Dabamitra's work on the history of disciplines of knowledge, talking about um, Aruna work on agency. There's lots of different approaches. So I, I'm not actually answering your question because I actually think we need all of these approaches and that they can be productively sort of brought into conversation with each other. Yeah, absolutely, ma'am. Uh, so with that, I have just one last question for you, um, which is that uh, we find much of the vestiges of colonial laws policing gender and sexual expression in post-colonial contexts. And section 377 was uh, is one of the many examples. Also, I came across a Twitter thread by you where you drew parallels between the CTA and the recent Transgender Persons Protection of Rights Act. So um, it would be great if you can like elaborate on the same, like uh, what you talked about in that thread for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, before I get into that um, 2019 act, um, I guess in general, you know, there are some really sort of clear parallels and um, echoes between the contemporary governance of the Hijra community 
and other um, gender diverse people um, and the colonial governance of the Hijra community. And so I think this is a really important question. And I also think that more work is needed to really unpack the history of the Hijra community over the late colonial and um, post-colonial periods. So in, in my book, I sort of point to a number of these um, seeming parallels and connections between contemporary and colonial governance. And I don't in that book have enough space to really sort of trace them over time and really tease out what are the continuities and discontinuities between colonial and post-colonial governance. Um, and I think that's an area for future work. But it is clear that those connections are not straightforward, right? We often talk about this in terms of colonial legacies or inheritances. And certainly there are some things that appear to be legacies, right? Like, for instance, you mentioned Section 377, which was a law that was introduced under British colonial rule, right? And, and um, still remains on the book, but has been uh, read down or changed in its meaning to not apply to consensual sex. I mean, that's a, an example that we could view very much as an, an inheritance, right? At the same time, I think we need to be really attentive to the particular context um, that shapes the ways that um, gender and sexual diversity are governed um, across time and also across space, right? So Section 377 didn't remain on the books until only a few years ago because it was a colonial law, right? There's people, you know, in the in the um, contemporary period, people have stakes in that law. It's, it, it's used for various, just, you know, discursive and, and social and political and governing ends, right? So I think that's also important. And as I mentioned before too, the colonial policing and governance of the Hydra community was really locally varied. And so for that reason as well, um, drawing a straight link to the, the present is, you know, you oversimplify matters. But at the same time, it's so apparent that there are these comparisons to be made, right? So I think the question is, how do we sort of unpack them? Um, and there are a number of parallels between the Transgender Persons um, Act of 2019 and the second part of the Criminal Tribes Act. Um, and you know the the act was called a protection of rights act, but um, as many activists um, from the trans community, from the Hydra community, um, pointed out, this was very far from a protection of rights act, and there were multiple problems with the bill um, that um, you know were were protested against for several years. So. But just to give two examples of places where we can see some similarities and connections between the colonial and contemporary governance of um, gender diverse people and the Hydra community especially. So first of all, um, in both these contexts, we see attempts to make um, Hydras and also other people with diverse gender expression legible to the state, right? in ways that don't recognize their gender subjectivities. So under the 2019 Transgender Persons Act, there was a process that was set up for applying for transgender certificates. 
um, and also change in gender certificates. And so the transgender certificate was issued on the basis of self-identification, except that it also required, required the district magistrate's approval. Right. So there's this official governance of, of who it can officially identify with the transgender category. And moreover, also to change legal gender um, from to either male or female as opposed to transgender required proof of surgery and the district magistrate's approval. So you can see how there's both a bureaucratic and sort of medical policing of people's gender um, as it's recognised by the state. And so this effectively allows the state to police gender categories and to regulate people's identities um, and their gender expression or how their gender expression is, is recognised by the state. And it also, um, you know, the, the male the sorry the gender certificates um, that were for changing to male or female also defined maleness and femaleness biologically or medically right so the criminal tribes act of 1871 worked quite differently obviously it's a different context but there were similar attempts to make people's gender expressions and their bodies legible through categorization um, and I detail some of them in my book right and most obviously perhaps by this unit category which was defined in law um, and was defined as well um, through um, the body essentially so the a eunuch was defined under law as an impotent man which also misrecognized hydrogender expression right which was was not masculine it was um primarily feminine right so that's just one example right of this attempt to make gender expressions and bodies legible um and also that the colonial government often attempted to define people's affiliation to a group or a community or their identity through knowledge of the body, including medical knowledge. So in addition to those practices of classification and sort of um, the attempt to police um, gender and social categories and, and who is recognised according to what category by the state, the 2019 Act, the Transgender Persons um, Protection of Rights Act, also recognised transgender people's right to be included in their households or families, but it defined family as their natal family. So it didn't recognize hydro kinship and discipleship structures or other non-biological non kinship practices, um, for instance, of transgender identified people. So this not this sort of um, failure or refusal of the state to recognize hydro kinship and discipleship has a much longer history right and the colonial government also did not recognize hydra households as a form of kinship um, they viewed discipleship structures as being somehow criminal um, and this was even though discipleship and kinship relationships were intertwined within Hydra communities and Hydra households in the 19th century. And, and that's very clear from the records. Um, it's clear that 19th century Hydras often referred to each other through kinship terms. And so the colonial government 
refused to recognize these these relationships right um and it was on that basis that people of 16 or under were forcibly removed from hydra households so you know that that works in a different way than the current bill uh, the current act um, that was passed in 2019 but what it shares what the criminal tribes act and this 2019 Act share is that they don't recognise kinship relationships and discipleship relationships. Uh, what you just said right now, like it made me think of how the Act also talks about parental consent for uh, minors, if I'm not wrong, if they um, want to get like uh, some sort of conversion um, therapy or something like that. and um, that made me think of how uh, you earlier talked about how hijras are considered kidnappers and how um, young minors are considered um, people who can't possibly consent to what uh, kind of identity they conform to. And like there is required like an explicit uh, familial consent to that identity. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting point, right? That it raises questions around, um, you know, for, for young people who are transgender, um, identify as hydra, identify as having other gender and sexual identities that are not, um, particularly gender identities in this case, um, that are not recognized by their families, like whose who's consent to join the hydra community, for instance, is, is recognized by the state, the parents or the child's right or the young persons um so yeah there there are some parallels i think there as well about um you know that the states both colonial and post-colonial have not recognized inter relationships as being um as legitimate right as natal or or marriage family relationships right uh, so, Mom, with that, uh, we are at the end of this podcast. Um, uh, we would like to um, thank you so much for your time, expertise, and valuable inputs. It was really such a pleasure to interact with you and discuss the various facets of gender and sexuality in colonial and post-colonial contexts and learn about the rich and very convoluted history of the hijra community in the subcontinent so um we with that we're at the end of our podcast thank you so much for joining us today ma'am Thank you so much and thank you for your really thoughtful questions as well. This episode of Rewind was hosted by Avishi Gupta from Second Year History, St. Stephen's College. The cover art for this episode was designed by Lamboy Kim Kongsai from Second Year History, St. Stephen's College. The introductory and closing audio is credited to Anu Migam from Second Year Philosophy, St. Stephen's College. Thank you everyone for joining in. We will be back with a new episode of Rewind soon.